So Adam last week was in the section, of course, before us in Hebrews 11 and talked really about characters who are in the book of Genesis, whereas now the author of Hebrews shifts and begins to talk about the characters in the book of Exodus, really focuses on Moses and the faith that he developed. And if you remember when we began chapter 11 of Hebrews, we talked about how what Hebrews is, is really just a lot of different portraits of what it looks like to walk by faith. It describes saving faith. How does saving faith work itself out? It's one thing to say, yes, I believe in God, like He's there, or He exists. It's another thing to actually trust Him. What does it look like to trust God, to trust that He's the one that saved you? And it's interesting because really, as far as time passed in these two characters, where, where we left off in verse 22 with Joseph, then picking up in verse 23 with Moses, there have been about 400 years passed between those two times. It doesn't mean there weren't people that believed, didn't believe to God or, or in God to saving faith before that time, but the author just wants to point out these characters who were considered to be like heroes, the best examples in the Old Testament. Because remember, the Hebrews that are being written to were those who had had faith in Jesus but because they're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, they're thinking we should just go back to Judaism. We should kind of go back under the law. We should just kind of relate to those that are of Israel and not push on with Jesus as Messiah. And so they're, they're basically, he wanting to exhort them, listen, the faith that God's calling you to is not just a new kind of faith. The faith in Jesus is the kind of faith that was exercised by all these heroes in the Old Testament, including Moses who wrote down the law. And so when we pick it up in verse 23, we see it starts with really not the faith of Moses as much as the faith of Moses' parents. And really what I want to do today is kind of talk about three main ways that faith finds courage, that faith finds courage. I hope that as we talk about this stuff, especially if you're not familiar with the book of Exodus, that you'll become more familiar with it and realize what God does to give us courage, what God how God gives us courage as we trust Him. So, picking up in verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. Now, this doesn't mean that they thought, if he's an ugly kid, throw him away. <laughs> what this means is, is that they recognized something about God's favor on this child's life. Now, you've got to understand the context of what was going on when this happened. Uh, if you read the first two chapters of the book of Exodus, what you see is it's a time when there's a king or a pharaoh over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, didn't know who Joseph was. And so there was great persecution now coming upon the Hebrews. They were made for, put into forced slavery. That uh, They weren't just kind of a, an ethnic group that was surviving or living in, uh, in Egypt. They were now began to be more and more marginalized. They were pushed to the side and they were pushed to forced slavery, and that got more and more intense. And the more threatened that the Egyptians felt by the Hebrews, the more intense the persecution. So that they came up with this law that said, okay, uh, that Pharaoh commanded the, the midwives, the Israelite midwives, and said, listen, when the babies are being born, if it's a female, fine, let it live, but if it's a male, kill it. That's what you need to do. Think about that for a second. Think about living in that kind of a, a culture that said, okay, if a Christian is born, if it's female, that's fine. We could use more women around, but uh, if, it's, if it's male, kill it. Think about that. 
So it's under that kind of circumstance that basically the good news is the midwives didn't obey. They, they basically made an excuse. Oh, we, we would, but the, mid, you know, the Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They're out, you know, digging the fields and out comes the baby. So they just kind of keep going. So we don't have a chance to kill the baby before mom gets a hold of it. And so God blessed them for, for being willing to kind of not keep that law. But there was still that law there. There's still that threat of, of you know, your children being killed. It's a, it's a big deal to be under. So you can imagine when Moses' parents, Amram and Jechabad were their names, when they know they're pregnant, they're both excited and scared because what's going to happen when this child's born? If this child's a, a male, which usually they would really want so they could pass on the name and pass on the lineage, that would be a good thing. But if this child's a male, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be killed. If it's a female, then it's going to be enslaved. And so you have this kind of pressure that they're feeling. So when Moses is born, there's something about him. It, all it really says in Scripture was he's a beautiful child. But it's interesting because the word that's used here for beautiful, it's a word that was originally meant to be beautiful to God. And so there's some, uh, some idea here, some hint here, that there was something about Moses that when his parents saw him, it wasn't just like, my baby's beautiful, because all parents think their babies are beautiful. And to be honest, they're kind of nasty when they're first born. But you think they're beautiful. But the thing is, the thing is, it was more than that. They thought, there's something special about this kid. There's no way we can do this. God has a plan for this child. And so by faith, they hid him for three months. And you probably know the story, what ended up happening is, they hid him for three months, and they finally put him in this wicker basket, this ark. They put him in, they, they put like tar around it so it's waterproof, and they stick him in the Nile and say, well, God, you've got to take care of him. And of course, the daughter of Pharaoh finds him and raises him, raises Moses as his own. Now, what's interesting, it says in verse 23, listen, it says that they did this, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Now, I want you to think about this. What was the king's command? Any newborn uh, Hebrew male need to be killed. They weren't afraid of that. Now, you would think maybe, especially the way we tend to talk about faith in the Western world, especially on religious television, the way they talk about faith, you would think, no, real faith would be, we're going to believe that God's going to supernaturally just keep this kid from ever getting hurt, so we're going to keep him. We're not afraid. But they didn't do that. They stuck him in a basket and threw him in a, put him in a crocodile-infested river. That was faith. It was faith because here's what they did. They said, listen, we can't submit to the king's command. We know that he has authority. We know he has power, but we can't submit to that power in this instance. Instead, we're going to say, God, you have ultimate power. You have ultimate authority. You are sovereign. And so we're going to submit them to you. We're going to lay our kids down to you. And we have to do that, don't we, as parents? We have to do it on, on a daily basis. Because I don't know if you know, those of you who are parents, you, you probably feel your own inadequacy. You realize, I, I don't have what it takes to raise this child. So what do you have to do? You put them in an ark and you say, Lord, they're yours. Here you go. You got to do this because I don't got what it takes to do this. Now they do this, and it's interesting because they're doing this saying, you know what, we know that the, the law says this is what has to happen to our kids, but we're not going to submit to that. We've got to submit to what God says about this child, what God's showing us about this child. And it reminds me of what happened in the book of Acts. You guys remember in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, 
have been arrested for preaching Jesus, telling people about Jesus. And the religious leaders, they arrest him and say, look, you've got to stop doing this. You've got no more preaching in the name of Jesus. And so what happens? It says, Peter and John answered and said to the religious leaders, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Now, I want you to understand this because we're talking about here this idea of faith that, faith that finds courage. And we find that courage, that faith finds it as it surrenders to God as the ultimate authority. And I don't want you to have a picture that the, Peter and John in, in the book of Acts or, or Moses' parents in the book of Exodus, that these guys didn't have any fear. I, I, I don't want to paint that picture. I don't think that's really what was going on. It wasn't like they were standing there going, we're not afraid, we'll take on Pharaoh and the religious leaders at the same time. We're super Christians, you know. That's not the attitude. I, I am sure that, that uh, Amram and Jacobed were incredibly afraid of what might happen to their child. But they had to say, God, you're in control. I am sure that Peter and John were thinking, this is it. We, Jesus said, we're going to be persecuted, even killed. Maybe this is it. We might die. But they said, no, we've got to submit to God. We've got to surrender to God. And, and I say that not just because I'm speculating because of what we know about human nature, but look at what Paul says. Listen, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our troubles which came to us in Asia. We were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. I love that. I love the fact that Paul says, man... When I was on this last ministry trip in Asia, I thought I was going to die. It was the hardest thing that I'd been involved in. But you know what? God was just teaching me, you've got to trust the one that raises the dead. You might die, but you've got to trust the one that raises the dead. See, this is the thing. Surrendering to God as ultimate authority means we don't have to be afraid of anything. We don't have to see death as the ultimate. Okay, I'll, I'll suffer, but I don't want to die. Or maybe I'll suffer and die, but I want to see my kids suffer and die. Or I'll, I'll, I'll go through this, but I can't go through that. And whatever that thing is, that thing becomes the ultimate authority in their life. I won't submit in that. I can't handle that. Please, not that thing. But the way our faith finds courage is to say, God, you know what? You are in control. i got to surrender to you. i got to say, God, you're in control. You're the ultimate authority. So whatever that thing is, even if it means my own destruction, it's okay because you, rise from, you raise the dead. You, you, there's, it's not the end for me. Now, he then goes on, the author then goes on to talk about Moses' faith. Obviously, he, he was uh, allowed to live because of the faith of his parents. God used that. But then my faith, when he became of age, it says, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, the faith that finds courage, not only does it surrender to God's ultimate authority, but also, listen, it chooses our God-given identity. See, see here's, here's Moses, right? Moses is, is raised in Pharaoh's household. He was, I'm sure, given an Egyptian name. He was given the best Egyptian education. He was... He was, he was uh, Already a beautiful child, but then as a beautiful child, then he would have been sort of raised on the best food, the best kind of exercise, the best kind of cosmetics. They would have, both men and women, been sort of dolled up uh, in the wealthy class of the Egyptians. I mean, this was, he would have been a stunning 
specimen of a man, basically. And because he was the, basically the son of Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's daughter, he was the grandchild of Pharaoh, potentially an heir to the kingdom of Egypt. And so that was what he was labeled as. You have this great label. You are this, you're this good-looking, educated, athletic, future leader of the known world. That's the identity that he was put on. And he refused it. No, that's not my identity. It's interesting that it says that, that the author uses that word in verse 24. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He rejected that. He denied that. That is not who I am. When he came of age and he realized who he was and he saw two of his countrymen, two Israelites fighting and he wants to break up the fight or he sees, first before that, he sees an Egyptian abusing an Israelite and so he slays that Egyptian because he has a sense of injustice. No, that's not right. And, 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 the, and, the, and the two Israelites that he tries to stop fighting say to him, you know, who, who do you think you are? Are you going to slay us like you did the Egyptian? He thinks, oh no, I'm going to get found out. Because he knew who he was labeled to be. You are meant to be the son of Pharaoh. You're meant to be the leader of the world. That's who you are. That's who the world says you are. You have to be this. And if you stay having killed an Egyptian, you have two options. Either you embrace that identity and say, yeah, it's, I'm Pharaoh. I can kill Egyptians when I want and I can kill Israelites when I want. Or you have to leave this identity 100%. So Moses chose to leave. He chose to reject that identity and say, no, I'm not going to stay with the labels that someone else puts on me. We have to do this. Because we, we need to be the kind of, of, of people. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to grow in faith that actually finds the courage to walk the walk that God's called to, we need to reject the labels that have been put on us by our upbringing. Whether you grew up in a Christian home or not. Because your identity, listen, your identity has very little to do with how you were raised. Your identity has very little to do with your personality. Your identity has everything to do with your faith in Jesus. The Bible says in the book of Galatians that we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the identity that we have. We are God's kids because of Jesus. So I grew up being called white trash. It's kind of like being called uh, a chav. And, And basically, I thought maybe that's what I am, but then there was this part of me that said, no, I'm... I think I'm better than that. And it's interesting because that was one exposing the fact that I had a lot of pride thinking there was something wrong with being poor and white. But also there was just this thing of there's got to be a better identity. And so then, then you know, as I got older and, and kind of, could kind of make my own money and not look so poor, then I thought, okay, I know what I'm going to do. I learned to surf when I was 15. I'm going to be Surfer John. I was the only guy in my sur- school that actually surfed. That's who I'm going to be. That's my identity. And then I had this radical conversion experience. God just rescues me from the pit of hell when I'm 18. And then I become, I'm, you know, Christian John, you know. I'm preacher John. He's always kind of, and that, that's going to be my identity. 
And it's amazing how, how many of these things will compete for who we are. And they can be good things. But listen, if we're going to find the courage to walk, we have to reject those identities and say, no, you know, actually what I really am is just a child of God through faith in Jesus. That's who I am. Moses had to get to a place where he realized it's not what my upbringing says I am, it's who God says I am, that I am. Not only did he refuse to be, uh, to refuse the label of his upbringing, but also look at verse 25. He said, instead, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. See, Moses, in choosing his, he's got to give him identity, he also, listen, he chooses to identify with sufferers rather than with those pursuers of sin. Now, I want to be really clear about something here because when he says the passing pleasures of sin, he's not saying that um, anything pleasurable is sinful. I think we have to be really careful about that. Because pleasure itself isn't sin. And you know, if we think that way, even if we have any kind of hint that we think pleasure is automatically sinful, we're way off base. God has created this universe, and He's created this universe in a way that's beautiful and it's meant to give us pleasure. God created human beings in a way that are meant to give us pleasure. God created marriage and sexuality in a way that's meant to give us pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing, pleasure is God's invention. Don't the enemy try to act like he made it. The problem is, is that we twist pleasure. We twist it into something that's not meant to be. Now also, it's important that we recognize that when it comes to making sinful choices, whether sinful choices have to do in the area of sexuality or they have to do in just the goals that we set for our own life or how we find our own identities, whatever it is, those sinful goals that we set for ourselves, listen, they will feel good for a season. They're passing pleasures of sin. They're seasonal, temporary pleasures of sin. That's the thing. It's funny because, you know, if you are involved in a sexual relationship and you're not married, your body doesn't know if you're married or not. It just responds and enjoys it. But it doesn't mean that that's a good thing. Hey, when people tell you how awesome you are and you think, yeah, you start believing that lie and you start thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I rock, I'm pretty awesome and you start feeling that way, it feels good. But a lot of it's just a lie. You know, it's, it's funny how sin is definitely pleasurable for a season. But what, what it's happening here is, is it's saying, of, the author's saying of Moses that what he chose to do, he knew, okay, look, if I reject being Pharaoh's son or grandson, if I reject that identity and I embrace the people of God, I embrace their identity, that means identifying with those who suffer. Because this has been the history of God's people from day one. They suffer because they follow God. It's one of the things I think that we don't want to accept as modern day Christians, Western Christians. We don't want to accept that suffering is a normal part of following Jesus. It just is. Suffering. Whether that suffering is inflicted from the world or even inflicted from, from the church, or inflicted from self, they're suffering. It's difficult to follow Jesus. And Moses knew if he was going to identify with God's people, he was going to suffer for that, but he says, I'm going to choose that instead. I'm going to choose sufferers over those who want to pursue sin. But he also said this, not only was he refusing 
and choosing, he was also esteeming. It says in verse 26, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Notice, for he looked for the reward. In other words, he knew, okay, he knew, all right, this God of the Israelites had made a promise to them that he would take them from slavery into a land someday. That he had heard the stories, I'm sure. And he thought, okay, there's a future. There's a reward for God's people. And so, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to suffer, but I'm going to look for that reward. In other words, here's what he did. He knew there's going to be suffering. He knew that to be identified with God's people means you've got to experience the worst of that. But he, in a real sense, listen, he chose the worst of heaven. And he esteemed it. He valued the worst thing he could experience as a Jesus follower, as a, as a follower of God, as better than the best thing he could have in this world. I want you to think about that for a second. What does that mean? I want you to think about that as a follower of God yourself. What kind of a testimony is it when we choose to say, I, I might want that thing that's worldly, but I want God more. I want God more. Hey, there's things in this world that I want. I desire things that are, that are worldly things. I do. There are things that I want. But the thing is, even though I want those things and I'm drawn towards those things, at the end of the day, when I'm facing those things and thinking, do I want to take a step towards those things, I have to choose and say, no, I esteem what God has for me as better than those things. I want what God has more than I want what the world has. That's part of following Jesus. That's part of being a God follower. That's part of our identity. We are those who are choosing the worst of heaven over the best of this world. That's what we're doing. Now listen, the Apostle Peter writes about this extensively. The whole book of 1 Peter is about this. Let me read to you just a few verses. Peter writes, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when His glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying, listen, when you, experiencing suffer, when you experience suffering in Christ's name, that's an identifying characteristic that God's Spirit dwells in you, that you are indeed born again, that you belong to God. He says, on their part, he is blaspheming. In other words, they slander God because you're going through bad times. But on your part, he is glorified. But he says, let none of you suffer as mur a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Any of those apply to, to you guys? Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Suffering is a normal part of being a Christian. It's part of how we are identified as believers. Listen, everybody in this world suffers some way, but God calls us specifically to suffer for the name of Jesus. He calls us to choose paths that are difficult because they're going to benefit God's people and they're going to glorify God's person. That's what he calls us to. It's part of our identity. So when your friends say, really, man, you're going to go to that church that has like the world's longest service? 
you know, and you're going to really sit there for two hours? Really? It's a beautiful Sunday. Wouldn't you rather go to the beach? Actually, I would rather go to the beach, but I want to please God more than I want to go to the beach. And God wants me to be there because he wants me to serve his people. He wants me to bless his people. It means, listen, when you have an opportunity to do something a bit slightly underhanded when it comes to a business transaction or maybe it comes to your taxes, and your tax advisor is going, well, you could get away with this. And you're going, yeah, but if I got caught, one, it would be bad, and two, even just knowing that I'm trying to get away with something, you know what, I do want to save the money, but I want to glorify God more. So I'm going to choose to suffer. You're going to stay in that marriage? Your spouse treats you like rubbish. And you're going to stay in that marriage? Don't you want to be treated well? Yes, I do. I wish my spouse did treat me decent, and I want that more than almost anything, but I want to please God more. Do you understand? You see, guys, this is what identifies us as a Christian. This is what Moses was a great example of. He was willing, listen, he chose his God-given identity. He wanted to be identified with the people of God, and that means rejecting what the label says, the labels of the world are about us, and it means suffering, and it means looking forward to what God has for us. Now, in verse 27, he says also of, of Moses, says, by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, we mentioned earlier that story of, of course, what happened with Moses. He sees the he sees the Egyptian treating the, the Israelites badly, so in, 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 in wrath and indignation, he slays the Egyptian who does that and buries him in the sand, tries to hide it. And then when he tries to break up a fight, of course, they know about him hiding the Egyptian in the sand and say, what are you, who made you a judge over us? And at that point, he leaves, the Bible even says in Exodus, he leaves Egypt because he's afraid. Which is interesting because it says here that he left not being afraid. But the idea, I think, here is that he left not with his biggest fear not being, you know, Pharaoh's going to find out, but his biggest fear is saying, I'm going to be forced. I'm going to be forced to be a member of his household, and I don't want that anymore. So I'm leaving. I want something else. And you guys probably know the story. If you know Exodus, he goes out into the desert. What happens? He meets a woman, right? And uh, he ends up sort of marrying her and works for his father-in-law, Jethro, and he's basically tending sheep for the next 40 years. And as he's tending the sheep, just kind of doing the basic thing that he's got to do, making a living, having kids, all that kind of stuff, right? As he's doing that, what happens? When the sheep wanders off, he goes after the sheep, and what happens? God reveals himself to Moses. God shows up and calls Moses to what he had intended him to be. Interesting, because it says there in verse 27 that he forsake, he, he, or sorry, he, he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for, for this reason, for he endured as seeing him who's invisible. So what's the forsaking Egypt talking about? Just him leaving? No. It's when he goes back after he has this vision of God, after God shows himself to him, he goes back to Egypt, not as an Egyptian, but as a follower of God. 
Interesting, listen to what the scripture says. Listen to how the scripture talks about the account. It's the the account of the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. It says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, You shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. There's two things here that are really important that God's revealing to Moses. One, when he says, I am that I am, he said, I'm the self-sufficient one. There's no God like me. That God exists outside of space and time. That God is not dependent upon the created universe that he made. But also, when, he, when, it says, tell them, when God says to Moses, tell them that the Lord God sent you, you'll notice the word Lord there is in all caps, small capital letters. And you see that all throughout the Old Testament. And the reason is, listen, is because the word Lord there is, is where we get the word uh, Yahweh, or sometimes it's, it's translated Jehovah. And it's, this, it's this, the name of God. God says, this is, this is what I'm like. And his name was considered so holy that the Jews wouldn't say it. They would say just Yah, or they would, it would substitute it for Adonai. So in the scripture, when the word Yahweh is being used, you have this tradition then kind of being carried on to where the English translate, translators say, okay, we're not going to say Yahweh, we're gonna, or, or however it would be actually pronounced. We're not going to say that. Instead, we're going to just put L-O-R-D in all caps, Lord, so that we know that's the kind of covenant name of God. See, see here's the thing, what's going on. Moses, listen, he's been out in the wilderness for 40 years, but what happens is, is that when God finally says, listen, you need to go back to Egypt, the, the Egypt that you left, but you don't go back to as an Egyptian. You go back as one who knows me, the covenant-making God. You go back focused on me. This is the thing, guys. God, God is calling us. If we're going to have a faith that finds courage, it's a faith that has to, say, it has to be saying, okay, I'm going to pursue what God's destiny is for me. Do you know why God saves you and leaves you here? Do you know? If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you're a Jesus follower, if you're a Christian, you've been born again, God saved you. According to Scripture, you have this, you have this salvation. You, you possess this position so you can have assurance that when you die, you're going to go and, and be with God forever. You're going to be perfected. Ever wondered why God doesn't just save you and say, okay, now you're forgiven, now whoop, come home like a little instant rapture or you just you die right away and you know you're in heaven. I mean, why not do that? If it's so hard now and it's so great then, why does he leave us here? Because part of our destiny is to know God through doing what his work is, sharing God with other people. It's sharing that truth about who he is. See, God called Moses to go back to Egypt to lead people out of Egypt into the promised land. God calls us, listen, he leaves us on this earth because he sends us out into our workplaces, out into our schools, out into our neighborhoods to call people to him. You know when that happens? Do you know when you begin to have the courage to do that? When you, when you focus on the God who's revealed himself to you. When you begin to see him as he actually is. 
See, I could tell you all day long, you should witness, you should tell people about Jesus, you should invite people to church, you should invite people to this outreach service. On and on and on and on. I could do that all day long, but guess what? It'll do no good except for maybe make you feel guilty. But what we really want you to do is we want you to see Jesus so clearly that you go, people have to know him, just like we read in the book of Acts earlier. How could I not but speak of what I've seen and heard? That's what God wants to do. I don't know about you, but I am scared to death about sharing my faith. It's easy to do it here. Even when I know there's a bunch of, if there's people that come that are cynical or unbelievers, it's still easy to do it here. Because one, I know I've got supporters. <laughs> and two, people expect it. People expect me to preach at them when they come to church. They expect me to share Jesus with them. They expect me to probably even challenge them to believe. But when I'm in my office and all the people around me are, are not believers, or most of them aren't, man, it's so hard to even know, how am I going to... And you know, sometimes, to be honest, I don't even think about it that much. And what will happen is I'll be in the communal kitchen or something and making a cup of tea and someone will come in and we'll begin the chat and I'll think, oh, what a really nice person, lovely person. And then I'll be reminded, a lovely person who does not yet know Jesus. And it's not guilt that makes me think, oh, I need to pray for this person or I need to step out. It's, man, Jesus is amazing and they don't know who he is. They have no idea who he is. This is what happens. God shows Moses the injustice that's happened to his people. He hates that injustice so much so that he kills a man for it. God shows Moses his identity is not in Egypt. It's to be somewhere else. So he leaves Egypt and he's out there tending sheep. He gets married, he has a family, all nice things, but that was not his destiny. His destiny was to tell other people about this God, to bring other people out of bondage into, into freedom. That was his destiny. When did he do it? Not until he could see who God was and begin to follow him. Not until he had that vision, until he could see him who's invisible and think, these people have to follow this God. This God has revealed himself to me. They have to know this God. They have to follow this God. This is their God they need to follow. Do you see God that way? Seriously. Do you see Jesus that way, the way Moses saw Yahweh? Do you see Jesus that way? That he's so good and so right and so willing Do you think people need to know him. If not, what you need to pray for is not just, God, help me to be bold or help me to be courageous. You need to say, God, help me to see Jesus. Help me to see him as he is. God, help me to see you as you are because if I don't see you as you are, I'll never tell people about you. I'll never fulfill the destiny you have for me. And so what happens is, it, it goes on to say in verse 28, that by faith he also, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Now this is interesting because now here he's moving on from basically Exodus chapter 3 to Exodus chapter 12 when uh, Moses does go back to Egypt. He does tell Pharaoh, let my people go. You guys have seen Prince of Egypt or you read the story. You know what goes on, right? And of course the Pharaoh refuses to do it. He keeps hardening his heart. He does not want to let God's people go. So God allows plagues to come upon Egypt through the hand of Moses 
And it, the, the more plagues that come, the more stubborn Pharaoh gets to the point that God says, okay, fine, you want to be stubborn? And hardens his heart and says, I'm going to give you what you want. You want to be hard-hearted against me? I'm going to give you that. And so what happens? It gets to the final plague. And this plague is going to be the death of the firstborn. Every child who was born first of every family is going to die. Every animal that was born first from, from every animal is going to die. Massive death. And it's going to be done by this destroyer, this angel of death that God's going to allow to come in and just wipe these things out. But God says, listen, God says to Moses, Moses, here's the deal. I'm going to bring this death to everyone, not just the Egyptians, everyone unless unless you do this. I want you to get a spotless lamb and I want you to slay that lamb and I want you to apply the blood of that lamb to the lentils of your doorpost. And when the angel of death comes over, that angel will pass over your house and he will not destroy you. I will not allow him to destroy you. And anyone, whether they're Israelite or Egyptian, the angel will pass over them if they will do this thing, if they will rightly apply the blood of the lamb to their home. Now, understand this. Moses found the courage to do this, okay? He found the courage to pursue the destiny that God had for him. Listen, because he trusted in both the necessity and the sufficiency of the sacrificed lamb. If you've seen God do nine supernatural plagues, I mean crazy stuff, man, turning water on the blood, multiple frogs coming in, multiple lice coming in, and then instantly going away. If you were to see all these radical plagues and know how supernatural your God is, and then God says, I'm going to kill every firstborn in this whole country. You'd be scared. You'd think, oh my goodness, if God can do that, what's going to happen to me? But when God says, okay, here's the deal. There's a way that death can pass over you. That's if the blood of the lamb is rightly applied. You have a choice to make. You gotta believe, okay, do I believe God when he says that a lamb has to be slain? And I believe God when he says the slain lamb is enough. That's the choice you have to make. Now, Moses made this choice. He knew, okay, if I'm gonna do what God calls me to do and I'm gonna set people free, then I have to believe it was necessary for the lamb to be sacrificed and I have to believe that it was enough for the lamb to be sacrificed. This is what we have to believe. If we're gonna fulfill the destiny that God has, if we're gonna find the courage to do what God's called us to do by leaving here to be about his mission, to help people come to know him, we have to believe, listen, that that Jesus, who is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, that it was necessary that he be slain and that it was enough that he be slain. We have to believe that. We've got to hold on to that. There's no way we're going to move forward without it. Hey, listen, there's a lot of stuff we can do in the name of Jesus that's good stuff. We, we, we can and should take care of the poor. We can and should raise godly homes. We can and should be good witnesses in how we work. How you work is just as important as what you say to people you work with. Please know that. How you do your job is just as important as what you say to your coworkers. Those are all good things. 
But the reality is God calls us to pull people out of darkness and into light. God calls us as Jesus followers to make him known unless you believe that he had to sacrifice his life and that it was enough that he sacrificed his life, what are you going to tell them? What message do you have to give? Moses believed this and he was able to do what God called him to do. In fact, it says this in Exodus 12, 33, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians and when he has seized the blood on the lintels and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So then the author quickly moves on in the last verse from chapter 12 of Exodus to really chapter 14 and he says this, by faith they, speaking of all of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as by dry land whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. This is interesting. Let me read to you some verses from chapter 14 of Exodus to, to give the context of what the author of Hebrews is talking about. This is what God's people, the Israelites, said to, this is what the Israelites said to Moses when he said, it's time for us to leave. It's time for us to run away. And they were, they were in the desert. They're going to the promised land and they get caught in this corner next to the Red Sea and they have the Egyptian army on their tail. And the, and the Israelites say to Moses, is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. See, they didn't want to leave. Even though they were slaves and they were cramped, and God, God, we hate being slaves, they thought, yeah, but if we escape, they're going to chase us and they're going to kill us. So we don't want to escape. But Moses said, listen, God's in this. The plagues prove this. The Passover proves this. Let's get out of here. Let's, be, let's walk in our redemption. He takes them across the desert. They're gonna, they have to cross the Red Sea, right? They got to cross the Red Sea. They get into this valley where the Red Sea is, and guess what? They can't get across it. It's too deep. They're going to drown. Can't walk across the Red Sea. Some, some liberal scholars want to say it was the Reed Sea, and they walked on reeds, but it's really clear in this context they walked on absolutely dry land. In fact, the word for dry land, it's one word, and it means absolutely parched. There's nothing but dryness there, like it's dust when you walk, come off your feet. And so, basically, they get to this place, and they're going, we told you this would happen. The Egyptian army is not going to destroy us. We're going to be dead. So what? The angel passed over us. Now the Egyptians are going to kill us. What's the, what do you do, Moses? But Moses takes a step of faith, puts his staff in the water. What happens? God parts the Red Sea. My favorite scene in Prince of Egypt, by the way. Parts the Red Sea, and they walk on dry land across these two walls of water, through these two walls of water, all the way across to safety. Now here's what's interesting. It's interesting because what happens is, looking again at Exodus 14, it should be on the screen. When they say this, we should have died in the wilderness, it says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, stand still, notice and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again, no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. It's a nice way to say shut up. Thus Israel saw the great work which God had done in Egypt and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. In other words, Moses says, listen, you might not believe, you might be struggling, but you need to see God's gonna do this. Come on, let's go. And he was the first one to step in. And as he crossed the Red Sea, of course, you guys know the story of what happens. 
the Egyptians follow, thinking if they can do it, we can do it. We don't know what kind of voodoo stuff's going on here, but we can do this, you know? And what happens? In their presumption, God judges them and whoosh, drowns the whole army. Now, as they cross over, we read that last verse. And it says really clearly that the people saw, wow, God did what he said and they feared God and they realized Moses was the guy telling the truth. And here's what's interesting. Because again, remember, the author of Hebrews is wanting to exalt Moses as an example of faith. What does it look like to have faith? There's lots of times in Moses' life where he, <laughs> he made big mistakes and he really doubted what God said. But when push came to shove and he was cornered, he thought, okay, I got to just trust God. I got to believe that what God said is going to take place. He's always done what he said. I got to believe he's going to still do what he says and I got to move forward. In other words, he said by faith, I'm going to lead these people through the Red Sea. Now, this is important because, listen, we're talking about faith that finds courage. We're talking about this, this reality that we find courage, our faith finds courage as we pursue what God's destiny is. Listen, you might feel like, yeah, John, you say we should share Jesus, but I don't know anybody else who's sharing Jesus. I don't know who to look to. Who's actually doing this? Who actually shares Jesus in the workplace? I don't see it. Well, guess what? That means you've got to be Moses. You've got to go first. Someone's got to go first. You've got to go first. And I'll tell you what, too. When you are willing to step out and go first, you know what ends up happening? Not only does your credibility goes up, but the, truth, the credibility of the truth of God goes up, and those believers around you will think, man, I need to be this way. My first, well, actually my second, when I got saved in October 1987, I was working for a supermarket. I needed to leave that job because I knew it wasn't a good place for me. And so instead, I went and I started digging ditches. I started working for a landscaping company. I was digging ditches. And in the summer, I'd become a foreman by the time I worked about six months, and it, we had these young lads come into work for just the summer. And when I was working with these guys, I made it my goal that I'm going to work harder than these guys that were a few years younger than me. I'm going to prove that, I, that, that they can't keep up with me. There's a bit of pride there, I admit it. But I was going to do this, but also I wanted to be an example to them. These guys were young Christian guys. They went to a Christian school and stuff. And so... When, when God gave opportunity, I tried to share with customers or people walking by and asking questions about landscaping. I tried to share Jesus with people. And the thing was, at the end of that year, both of those young men said, in that summer, both of those young men said, you know what, we're going back to our school that is a Christian school where everyone thinks they know about Jesus, but so many people don't know Jesus. And we're going to be bold because if you can do it, we can do it. If you can do it, has only been a Christian for, at that time, maybe a year and then we can do it. We've been Christians our whole lives. If you can do it, we can do it. See, this is all that God's wanting to do. He's, he's calling you to be the one that's going to be like Moses. God, maybe no one's going to do it, but I'm going to do it. And guess what will happen? <clears throat> when you step out in faith, and I'm not talking about beating people over the head with the Bible. I'm not talking about yelling at a bullhorn. I'm talking about just being willing to <clears throat> perfectly engage in conversation about Jesus. When you do that with your neighbors, with your friends, with your work colleagues, you know what's going to happen? The other Christians in your work are going to come up. Whoop! You're going to know, wow, that guy's a Christian. I didn't know that. That person's a Christian. I didn't know that. That person goes to church. I didn't know that. And some of them are going to say, well, if they can do it, I can do it. 
See, here's the thing. This is what the destiny that God's given us. And we're gonna, if we're going to find faith that finds courage, we have to pursue that. We've got to pursue that. Moses had a specific call that I don't have that you don't have. But what God called Moses to do, in some sense, is God calls us all to do. He calls us all to lead other people to know God. If you are finding that your faith is weak, if you feel that you don't have much courage about your faith, maybe it's because you need to share it. Maybe what you need to do is be prayerful and intentional about, Lord, how can I reach the people around me? And see what God does.